1 Corinthians chapter number 14, verse 1. Here are the commands from the apostle. Pursue love, he says, and earnestly desire the spiritual gifts, especially that you may prophesy. For the one who speaks in a tongue speaks not to men, but to God, for no one understands him. But he utters mysteries in the spirit. On the other hand, the one who prophesies speaks to people for their upbuilding and encouragement and consolation. The one who speaks in a tongue builds up himself, but the one who prophesies builds up the church. Now, I want you all to speak in tongues. That'll preach, but that's not a message for tonight. Now, I want you all to speak in tongues, but even more to prophesy. The one who prophesies is greater than the one who speaks in tongues, unless someone interprets so that the church may be built up. Okay, that's the, that's the third week in a row that we've read those verses, and we're going to look at uh, where last week we left off, and let's just continue this study, and let's see what we can learn. I, I've tried to establish over the last couple of weeks that when we hear the word prophecy referring to a New Testament Charisma is the Greek word. It's simply a grace endowment. It's a grace gift. You've heard of the gifts of the Holy Spirit. The plural word for that is charismata, from which you get the very common term in our day, charismatic. And so the, the term charismatic is actually rooted in theology. The charismata are the gifts of the Spirit, and we're going to be talking about this one in particular, the gift of prophecy. But it's not the same as what we see as prophecy in the Old Testament. They touch, they can overlap in places, but they're not the exact same thing. So one of the biggest problems that we have in the New Testament church is a failure to comprehend the distinctions between the Old Testament reality of prophecy and the New Testament gift of prophecy. In the Old Testament, when a word of prophecy was given, it was given by God directly to an individual that he has called and assigned to communicate that word. That individual then had to steward that word to proclaim it to the audience that he was assigned to. And typically when that happened, you're going to find references to the Holy Spirit coming upon that individual and that message being given. But the Holy Spirit never indwelt that individual. I made the distinction a couple of weeks ago. It's the difference between the Holy Spirit's visitation in the Old Testament and the Holy Spirit's habitation in the New Testament. If you are here tonight and you are born again, the Holy Spirit inhabits you. That means wherever you are, wherever you go, he is in you, he is with you. In the Old Testament, it wasn't like that. You don't find that, that reality of the Holy Spirit inhabiting and staying with somebody permanently. He would come upon a person, they would either give a message or do some mighty deed, but then he would be seen to be leaving that person and until the next time that that person had an assignment. And so when we move to the New Testament, here's something that we all need to recognize. Because we have the Holy Spirit, we have the gifts of the Holy Spirit. When you have the giver, you have the gifts. When you have him, if you want to use, and I'm careful with the terms I use, none of them fit perfectly, but you have access to all of the gifts. 
You are equipped because you have the giver living inside of you. And some of those gifts are going to be at a high level in your life because they are consistent with God's assignment for your life. Other gifts may be less noticeable. They may be less active, but that does not mean you do not have those gifts. It may mean one of two things. God is not calling to use the, you to use those gifts at a highest level, or it may mean that we have disobeyed the commandment that we find in here. And so let's look at that. What does it mean to pursue spiritual gifts? Look at the command. It's very clear here. When we're talking about the pursuit of prophecy, it is in the context of pursuing spiritual gifts. And so let's look at these verses again. In verse number one, we are commanded, watch this, to pursue love. That means I am to make it my intention to become a more loving, love-driven, love-motivated, love-filled, love-characterized Christian. But we are also told to earnestly desire the spiritual gifts and then taking it a step further, especially among those spiritual gifts, especially desire that you, yep, little old me, little old you, that you may prophesy. And so think, I want you to think through this with me. The question that I began to ask myself years and years ago as a Baptist cessationist, one who believed that the gifts had ceased, I had to ask myself, then what do these verses mean to me? If the supernatural gifts of the Holy Spirit are gone, then that part of my Bible I don't even need to read. I don't even need to look at it, much less obey it, because I was taught all the gifts are gone. So in actuality, I was mentally ripping out parts of my Bible. And then it didn't stop with 1 Corinthians 14. I had to rip out 1 Corinthians 12. And then I had to rip out Romans chapter 12 and 1 Peter chapter 4 and most of the book of Acts and a little bit of the book of Revelation. And I found that I was editing my Bible in my mind. And I began to really get troubled about that, that the theology I was taught was resulting in me saying, that doesn't need to be in the Bible anymore. That has no place in the Bible. I don't need to obey that. And so I really became troubled. So I just started studying the scriptures and asking God to deliver me from any poor theology that I had been taught. And when I approached the scriptures with the simplest approach, not with the magic key to unlock the mysterious code that only a certain few enlightened teachers can know, but when I just said, Paul was writing these verses to a group of Christians that weren't even overly spiritual. The church of Corinth was not the most spiritual group of people, and he's saying, I really, really, really want you to earnestly desire spiritual gifts. And so it's not that we need to have continual Bible studies on spiritual gifts. It's not that we need to say, amen, spiritual gifts exist. We are not obeying the Bible until we as individual Christians are, are pursuing the Lord and saying, I want the gifts to be activated. Lord, I zealously, earnestly, sincerely, seriously want spiritual gifts to characterize my life. And that's a far cry from the way a lot of us were taught to approach these things. And then he heightens it and he says, and out of all those gifts, out of tongues, out of miracles, out of the gift of faith, uh, out, out of administration and helps. You find those in Romans 12, 1 Peter 4. Paul says the best gift for the church that we can use in our relation and our ministry to each other is the gift of prophecy. And interestingly enough, I believe that's one of the reasons why the devil fights it with all the power of hell, because God has said, yeah, it's the most important gift. And so is it any wonder that Christians are feuding over this thing years and years later? So uh, again, just for emphasis sake, in verse four, chapter 14, verse 5, he says again, I want you even more to prophesy. He had said, I want everybody to speak in tongues, but I want you even more than speaking in tongues, I, I want you to prophesy. 
Verse, 14, uh, verse 12, since you're eager for manifestations of the Spirit, that's kind of tongue-in-cheek because apparently the, the people at Corinth really wanted to look spiritual. He says, oh, since you want these cool spiritual gifts, why don't you go after the one that builds up the church the most? Why don't you strive to excel in building up the church by uh, the gift of prophecy? And then he says again, earnestly desire to prophesy. So, I know this is the same stuff I've been rehearsing with you for the last couple of weeks. And if you're watching online or watching this at a later time, in those other messages, I'm hammering this. Why? Because Paul does. Because the Bible does. The Bible keeps telling us over and over and over again. And I think the practical reason for that is it's real easy for us to shrug this off and just say, yeah, I don't, I don't really know that I understand that enough. And we get spiritually lazy. And we don't do the thing that God told us to do it. Now, if God's telling us to do something at an elevated level, that means it has an elevated importance to his heart. And so prophecy is essential to the health of a local assembly, and I believe it is where a lot of people will come alive in the Spirit because it literally requires such an intimacy and an abiding between you and the Lord. Why? Well, let's talk about what prophecy is just very briefly. Remember, simply defined prophecy is the human report of a divine communication it literally means this it means that god is still speaking to people and we've talked about the different levels of authority that should be assigned to prophecy if i give you a prophetic word it does not carry the weight of authority that your bible does your Bible is the infallible Word of God, and it backs always. There's no questioning. When it's written and properly understood, we must believe and obey the Scriptures. But a prophetic word is given as God is speaking in the now, a rhema word in the moment. And he gives it to somebody, and in that intimate abiding relationship where he is correctly understood, it's interpreted, and it's spoken and applied, that means God is actively engaging in people's lives right here and now. It literally means, and I have to be so careful because I'm always hearing the argument of my professors and those that taught me. I'm always hearing them standing up protesting in my mind, but I'm just going to say it. It literally means that God has more to say than what is revealed in the Bible. It doesn't mean he'll ever say anything that contradicts the Bible, but he has more to say. You say, Jeff, that sounds like heresy. Well, that's actually in the Bible. John said if all of the teachings and works of Jesus were to be revealed, they would have filled up more books than the world can handle. And so we know that the Bible does not reveal everything about the heart of God. It reveals so much about him. And when we properly understand that he's speaking today and we know how, what level of authority to assign to that, we, we realize, oh, I'm not serving a historical God that used to talk. I'm serving a contemporary right now God that is still talking. And he's going to talk through some of you. And he's going to speak into other people's lives. So let's go down into this. Um, let's throw that passage from Acts 2 up on the screen because we're, we're, I'm actually preaching this passage uh, on Sunday, a little bit of it. No, actually, Dustin's going to preach it in a couple weeks, but I'm going to reference it Sunday. But this is on the day of Pentecost. This is after the Holy Spirit's been poured out, the tongues of fire, the, all of the, the beautiful chaos that is, takes place on, on Pentecost. And then Peter stands up, and he's going to put a sermon to it. And he says, this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. And he quotes Joel chapter 2 here. In the last days it shall be, God declares, watch this, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. And your sons and your daughters will prophesy. And young men will see visions, old men dream dreams. 
and on my male servants and female servants. In those days, I will pour out my spirit and they shall prophesy. So watch this. Let me just, let's walk through this. Let's reason through this. True or false, are we living in the last days? We are. I think, I don't know of anybody that would say no. Uh, because Peter said in that sermon right there that on the day of Pentecost, when the Holy Spirit was poured out, Peter says, this is that day. This inaugurates that day. So the last days began on the day of Pentecost. You can clearly see that Peter says, what you are seeing is attached to the 500-plus-year-old prophecy from Joel 2 that this outpouring on the day of Pentecost is the beginning, the mark of the last days. And so all sorts of elements are, are described about the last days. And the first thing Peter says is in the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, the first characteristics he mentions is that men and women are going to be prophesying. He says it. So he, the gender roles... The gender roles are, are suddenly wiped away in the, in the context of prophecy. It's not for men only. You, you read your Old Testament, you're not going to find the book of Sarah. You're not going to find the book of Norma Jean. You're not going to find any female name. It was men, 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 men that were called. But when you come to the New Testament, where in Christ there is neither male nor female, the first thing that Peter gives here is he says this. That your sons and daughters are going to prophesy. So he does away with gender classification. Then he does away with um, uh, uh, social classification. He says that even the servants, and that's a tidied up word for Roman slaves, as Peter is saying it. The people that had lost their freedom. They were slaves. And he said, God's not going to make a distinction between the, the, the free class and the high class and the lower class and the enslaved class. He's going to pour out a spirit upon how much? All flesh. That's the whole of humanity. And so when we're talking about the last days, one of the foremost characteristics is that in the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, it's going to touch anybody and everybody. And those that receive can and will be characterized by the ability to prophesy. It's incredible. We're, by the way, we're going to go over a lot of this on Sunday morning. I am so excited about Sunday morning. And the reason why is this. Sunday morning, we're going to be in Acts 2 on the day of Pentecost. And every time I preach Acts 2 on Pentecost, two beautiful things happen. Religious people get really mad and spirit-filled people get really happy. And so it's just going to be fun. And I'm going to love everybody equally, but it's always fun to just kind of throw their grenade out there and see what the Lord does with it. So my point being is this. When I look at this passage... I, I'm a Bible student, and so one of the things, especially in controversial or debated areas, if people are debating this, I, I don't only read the English words, I go back and read the Greek words. And then I don't only, only read the Greek words, but I want to study the Greek verb tenses because the Greek language is very, much more intricate than the English language. And what you find in Peter uh, quoting Joel 2 in Acts chapter 2 is you're going to find all of the verbs that he's giving about the outpouring of the Holy Spirit and the prophesying and, 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 and the sons and the daughters and the male servants and the female servants. It's all in a verb tense. It's called the present active, excuse me, future active tense. Now there are verb tenses that the Holy Spirit could have inspired to be recorded in the book of Acts that would have indicated this was a one-time event where the Holy Spirit was poured out, they prophesied on the day of Pentecost, and it came to an abrupt stop. There are verb tenses that he could have used to do that. Those are not the verb tenses he used. It's a future active. It indicates when it was given in Joel, it was future. It actualized on the day of Pentecost, but the, the results are active. God is pouring out his Spirit. He did pour it out, but he's not done. 
The, the people did prophesy, but we're not done. And so the idea that this gift or any of the other gifts stopped mysteriously, magically, ambiguously at the end of the first century, which is what I was taught. I was taught that. That's the doctrine of cessationism. The gifts ceased when the apostles passed off the scene. And we don't need the gifts anymore because we have the written word of God. That's the doctrine of cessationism. There's only one problem with that doctrine. There's no Bible to support it. None. You can do gymnastics. You can pull a verse from here, match it up with a half verse here, bend them over a couple of verses here, and you can say, see what the Bible teaches? And it's a horrible way for us to treat our Bible. And the, the, the reality is, is 1 Corinthians chapter 12 is insistent that the Holy Spirit is the giver of the gifts, that he gave them to the church. And it takes a whole lot of audacity for us to remove something from the church that the Holy Spirit gave, especially when there's not a shred, there's not a single verse that says that has occurred. That is why I stand without apology now, publicly, clearly, um, even sometimes happily, and I fight against the doctrine of cessationism because it robs the church of, of believing that there is power and giftedness. To, and, and the devil hasn't lost his power. The devil hasn't stopped with his gifts, but large segments of the church have been told that we don't have those gifts anymore. So we have to combat darkness and spiritual dark powers with what? Logic, education, sincerity. F folks, listen, it doesn't work. You don't, go, you don't bring a knife to a, to a shotgun fight. And when we're bringing our little precise little theological knives and we're trying to cut up the devil, he just pulls out his weapons and blows us away because we're showing up to a supernatural fight in our natural powers. And I would just make this observation. Is it any wonder that the church in America in many places seems to be shrinking, dying, atrophying, and losing the battle? Is it any wonder why so many Christians are living lives that are devoid of power? And, and, and what power that we have as believers, we often take the best of our energies not to fight the devil with, with spiritual weapons of warfare because we've been told we don't have those anymore. So what do we do? We fight each other. We debate with each other. And, and the devil is happy to applaud us from the sidelines. Now, I'm getting off track, but I'm, 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 what I'm trying to say here is this. The gift of prophecy is essential. When we... When we look at the New Testament, this gift is seen as available for every single Christian. Now, automatically people protest and they say, well, Jeff, doesn't it say at the end of 1 Corinthians 12 that not all will speak in tongues, not all will have miracles, not all will have healings, not all will prophesy? Well, of course it says that. It says not all will. It never says not all can. And we've turned in this idea that not all will. There are gifts that I want that I'm seeking the Lord for that I have never experienced. I mean, I, I'm just like, Lord, if these are all available, I am not going to be shy with you. Because I can't think of a single gift that you've made available that we can't put to use today for the glory of Jesus and for the building up of the church. So I want them all. And, and I, I understand we have him, so we have access. But there's a reason why we're told to pursue those gifts. So, Jeff, why would we pursue what we already have well, let me just bring it into a marriage paradigm. Um, I have a wife, but I'm going to tell you, it's not going to be a very potent relationship if I don't pursue her. 
And so I've got her. I've got the wedding ring. I've got the marriage license. It's down at the courthouse. I got video. I, we, we were married. I, I got pictures. I've got all of that. We're married. So I have her. She has me. But we pursue each other. Why? Intimacy and potency. We want that. And yet in our Christian lives, we're like, well, we've got all the gifts and God is sovereign. If he wants to bring a gift out of me, he'll do it whenever he's ready. I'm going to challenge you. That's an absolute lazy person's cop out. Because the Bible says, pursue the gifts. Think about this. <laughs> I've, the third week in a row, I've trashed the outline, but that's okay. That's why I didn't pass them out today, because I knew this was going to happen. Some of us, on the first day on the job, brand new place, first day on the job, we have the job, we might have the workstation or the desk. We showed up at the right place. We have the authority to do that job. We, ha- we might even have a little nameplate on the desk or the door. It's our job. We, we know theoretically how to do it. Maybe we've trained it. Maybe, maybe we've done it somewhere else before. But on that first day of the job, you've got everything you need, but, but you start out a little awkward. You've got to start somewhere. You've got to have the first day. You don't know people's names. You don't know the workflow. You don't know how things go. But by week number one finishing, you, you, you've become a little more fluid in it. By month number one finishing, you're a whole lot further down the road in that job than you were on day one. And I want to just say this. We need to approach spiritual gifts as as less of a one-and-done kind of mindset and more of a, I have everything I need, but I need to grow in my fluidity. I need to grow in my comfort. I need to grow in my ability. I need to understand how how to use what I have right here, right now. And I think in almost every area of our lives, we allow for this idea of, of growth and maturity and gaining experience and developing. But when it comes to spiritual gifts, it seems to be in the church that we've made it so supernatural that we don't even recognize the human element in it. And so we don't, we don't allow room for people to try gifts and fail. Because, bless God, if they fail, it must not be of the Lord. Because the Old Testament says if somebody gives a false prophecy or misses it by an inch, we, Jeff, we need to take them out into the lower deck of the parking lot and let's get our stones ready because they're a false prophet and we're going to stone them. And obviously, we wouldn't do that. But, but instead of doing that, what we say is, no, nah, because if we get it wrong, it'll make God look bad or it'll make us look bad. And so there's this awkwardness. And Pastor Dustin and I have made up our minds that as much as our influence is going to be exerted here, we feel a definite leading of the Lord to empower and equip the saints to learn to do the work of the ministry. And I want to tell you, one of the parts of that is going to be, we're going to see people succeed and ride high and enter into a fullness and an empowerment. It's going to be beautiful, but there are going to be other times where all of us are going to be going, oh man, did she actually say that or did he say that? And we'll have to handle that. The, the point being is an abuse or a misuse of a gift should never cause us to enter into disuse of the gift. There are people that abuse spiritual gifts. There always has been. Read 1 Corinthians chapter 12, 13, and 14. The reason why Paul wrote those chapters is because there were goofballs in Corinth that actually had the gifts, but were not using them in love, and so they were abusing the gifts. And Paul never said, that's it, no more gifts. Stop using spiritual gifts. He never said that. He actually said, no, please keep pursuing gifts. Pursue them zealously. Pursue them earnestly, especially prophesy. But let me tell you how they must be used. And so instruction accompanies the empowerment. And so let's get down into these verses here. Um, These are going to be up on the screen. I need to make the statement because this is important 
especially as the prophetic gifting uh, begins to be operative in a local assembly or somebody's life. Because it's not a free-for-all. These gifts, we are commanded as a body of believers to regulate and to validate the gift of prophecy. Why is that? Because notice again, in the Old Testament, when God called a man to prophesy, and he stood up and prophesied, when he was a God-called prophet, nobody got to parse his prophecy. Nobody got to say, well, wait a minute, let's think about this. It was binding. Thus saith the Lord over and over again in the Old Testament. In the New Testament, it's a completely different animal. And watch this, I'll prove it to you right here. New Testament prophecy has to be weighed. It has to be evaluated. There's actually a process that Paul stipulates in the epistles whereby prophecy begins to move in a body of believers. So I think it's very important that we look at that. First of all, we are to test prophecy. This will be in your notes. This is what I call the proving of prophecy up on the screen. Let two or three prophets speak and watch this and let the others weigh what is said. You never find that in the Old Testament among the people of God. The prophet of God was established to the Israelites. They knew who the prophet was. Whatever the prophet said, he spoke for God. Nobody got to debate it. But here in the New Testament church, where the gift of prophecy is available and can be active in every single believer, the tendency might have been for everybody that thought they had a word. Because people, prophetic people, they're they're fun. I mean, but I'm being kind here. Sometimes they always have a word, even when they don't have a word. And, and so that may have been happening at Corinth. And Paul said, Paul said this, listen, and when the church is gathered together, when, when a prophetic word comes, let it be two or three. And then he instructs them not to prophesy all over each other. But if somebody else stands up with a word of prophecy, let the person that was giving the first prophecy, in humility and love, let the other person speak. But then he says to the entire church, When that word is given, let it be weighed. Let it be scrutinized. And so there was a process. We're not given all of the details about what that uh, process is. And I'm grateful for that because I believe what that allows every local assembly to do is literally their leaders will establish. That's part of being a bishop or an overseer. That, that we literally are accountable to God to make sure that what is spoken in the name of Jesus in the local assembly is A, consistent with Scripture. It has to be consistent with Scripture. If it's not consistent with Scripture, it is so easy just to shot block that thing. Somebody stands up and say, I believe I have a word for the Lord, from the Lord. And what we'll tell them is, okay, why don't you come down? I want you to submit that word to the elders. Let them listen to it. And if that word that is submitted to the elders before it goes to the church, if that word is not consistent with Scripture, that elder is able to say, I'm sorry, we won't be sharing with that. Let's talk after the service. You say, well, Jeff, that's kind of awkward. What what if it's from God? Well, I'm going to tell you something. God never says anything that contradicts his word. You, You and I must retain that. We've got to understand that there's a difference between something being non biblical and something being unbiblical. 
Something unbiblical is something that is spoken that violates something clearly in Scripture. That's always shot blocked. That'll never get spoken here. And if it does, Dustin or myself or somebody in leadership will stand up and we will revoke that word. It might be embarrassing. It might be awkward. But that's better than us being silent because we don't have the backbone to say that wasn't of God. And that is an unbiblical uh, situation where somebody says something unbiblical. The problem that we have in a lot of churches is that people pounce on things that are non-biblical, and they automatically say that's unbiblical. I was dialoguing with somebody recently that was so mad at a parachurch ministry for teaching healing seminars and how to equip and activate and impart and to help people grow in the gift of healing. And the argument that it was in an online forum, and I was being sweet. I wasn't being combative or nice. I was trying to help this lady. It was on Randy Clark's school of medicine. It was just a little thread there. Randy Clark's a former Baptist pastor. He got filled with the Spirit, just got denominationally wrecked. He was, no, he was ruined for denominations after that. And he's been used all over the world to help people uh, uh, walk in this gift of healing. But the lady's argument was, there's nothing in the Bible about a school of healing. And you know what? She's right. It's non-biblical, but my question is, is there anything in the Bible that would preclude us from helping people grow in that gift? Because we help people grow in preaching, don't we? We help people grow in counseling, don't we? We help people grow in all of the gift of giving. Giving is a gift that is seen in the Bible. We help people grow in their giving, but all of a sudden when it comes to something supernatural like healing, this lady cried foul. Why? Because it's non-biblical. Now listen to me. When God starts moving in a local assembly, I'm going to promise you, you're going to see some non-biblical things. But you got to discipline your mind, and you got to develop discernment, and you got to trust your leadership to discern. If you're not able to discern, you got to trust your leaders to discern the difference. Was that an unbiblical word, an unbiblical action, or was it merely non-biblical? You follow me on that? A lot of people get hung up on that. Because they assume this, if there's no biblical precedent for it in Bible, it can never happen. Well, have we ever seen the second coming? Is it going to happen? We say, well, Jeff, it's referenced in Scripture, but it hasn't happened yet. And so the point being is this, just because God hasn't done it and it's recorded in Scripture doesn't mean he can't do it now. And so when we're thinking through these things, one of the the goals is that we have to loosen our grip on what we dictate to God about what he can and cannot do. And then it is incumbent upon your pastors, especially in this season, especially uh, as we are still moving deeply into this, Dustin and I feel a, a deep accountability to God to make sure that we, even at the risk of maybe going too slow, that we are clearly overseeing this process. Uh, this, uh, process. So let, let, let's go through this just quickly. Way would have said, what, what is that going to look like? It means there are occasions, there's been, I think, three or four occasions since we've merged the two churches where on a Sunday morning or a Wednesday night, somebody will have a word from the Lord. And they'll come up and they'll say, hey, pastor, I got a word from the Lord. They say it to Dustin or they say it to me. Let me tell you what we don't do. Oh, really? Well, let's get a mic. Here you go. Whatever, whatever you got to say, just say it because I'm sure it's of the Lord. We don't do that. We might love them. We might trust them. But we're accountable for everything that is spoken over this house. We're accountable for it. He and I will give an account for that. And so we say, what is it that the word Lord is saying? And on the three occasions that I've stewarded somebody coming to, all three times, it was definitely of the Lord. 
And so there was one lady and two men that gave a word, and all three times it was edifying, it was encouraging, it was comforting. It wasn't indicting, it wasn't accusative, it didn't tear down the body, it built up the body. But that process is going to be in place. Sometime there may arise occasion where we hear something, and either we know it's not of the Lord or we're not sure. And in those moments where we're not sure, let me tell you what we're going to do. We're going to say, I appreciate you. I don't have peace right now about that being shared with the body. I hope you'll trust me, and uh, we're not going to share that at this time. And in that moment, we may risk offending somebody. We may be risking being called, well, a religious control freak. But I'm going to tell you, I'd rather be misunderstood by that person than to allow for a confusing word to go out when we didn't really have the peace that it was from the Lord. And so that's part of our responsibility. You may wonder, why am I sharing this? Because I think the season is on us where this is going to be happening. And, and what Dustin and I want to do is we want to make sure that you have an opportunity to know how we're going to be stewarding this. So when we look at this word, this phrase, weigh what is said. Back in 1 Corinthians 14, 29, let the two or three prophets speak. And there you have, but weigh what they're saying. It's a... It's a it's a Greek word. It's diacrino. And it's a word that means to separate thoroughly, to withdraw from. It can mean to oppose, to oppose what is said, to withdraw from what is said, to separate from what is said. But it, it, it basically means be, have a discriminating mind, not in the negative sense of racial discrimination, but to discriminate means to separate between things. And so the church is actually told, and when this gift is in a healthy church and it's flowing, the elders don't have to do all of the weighing what is said. The body gets to do it. And so there's going to be a time where somebody may come to you and say, I believe I have a word from the Lord for you. And usually if somebody approaches me like that, most of the time I say, say on, let's hear it. And when they say it, the beauty is this, my call as they're saying it is to weigh it. Is that something God's been speaking to me about? Does that resonate with my spirit? Is it, a, is it a word of gentle correction that I might be needing? Not all prophecy is happy and you know, rose-colored. Sometimes a prophetic word can come. It's still building you up, but it's going to humble you first. And so you have to be discerning. But I want to I tell this. Some of you may have received prophetic words over you that were never meant for you to receive. Somebody came and tore you down with a word. Somebody that maybe thought they were helping God be holy came to you and told you everything that was wrong, and you absorbed that because you failed to weigh it. And I believe that one of the most important needs in a prophetic culture is that we have to be intimate with the Lord before the Word comes, both in giving it and receiving it. Because if I'm not walking closely to the Lord, and somebody that I presume is walking more closely to the Lord comes to me in a moment of their weakness and they say, I got a word for you, man, and they give me something and it wrecks me, if I'm not walking with the Lord, I'm going to struggle with whether or not that was him or them. And so it's so important, yet another practical reason why we've got to be walking in intimacy with Jesus. And so this word tells us you have to listen to what is said, you have to think about it. It's not a matter of being politically correct. I've looked at a person one time, they gave me a word, and I just said, that wasn't from God. Appreciate what you're trying to do. I think I know what you're trying to do, but you're wrong. God bless you. And, you know, it was really awkward. But I'm not going to own the whole awkwardness if they made the mistake. Let them own it. Are y'all with me? Am I confusing you? I don't want to confuse you. 
I'm just telling you, this stuff can get messy, but a lot of good stuff is messy. I mean, ask any woman that bakes a good cake, amen. That kitchen's going to get messy, but it's going to be sweet when the finished product comes out. It's the same way with the prophetic. It can get very messy. So let me give you this last thing, and then I'm going to invite Pastor Dustin to come up. Not only do we test prophecy, but we have to value prophecy. 1 Thessalonians 5, 20 and 21. This is to, to the body of believers. Do not despise prophecies. Do not despise prophecies. Test everything. Test everything. And then you hold fast what is good. Now watch this. Three steps when prophetic words are being given. The first is an attitude thing. We are told, we are forbidden in Scripture to despise prophecy. It's a word that indicates do not reject, do not bring down in low esteem, uh, do not discard the reality of prophecies. That's a word to my cessationist friends because we were taught to do exactly that. We were taught to reject the notion of prophecy because it doesn't exist anymore when the Bible actually says never do that. You see, it's not, it's not because I've abandoned my commitment to the Scriptures that I believe in the gifts. It's because of my commitment to the Scriptures that I have um, come to, come to uh, a solid belief in the gifts. I, there have been people who said, Jeff, you don't believe your Bible anymore. That's why you're pursuing spiritual gifts. I'm like, it's because I believe my Bible that I am pursuing spiritual gifts. It's because I believe my Bible that I'm pursuing prophecy. It's because I believe it, not because I've abandoned it, but because I believe it. So we're not to despise prophecy. I'll just say that to you. If you're a skeptic in here, I've been where you've been. I get it. Especially if you were groomed in a uh, denominational atmosphere or a theological atmosphere that said these gifts are for a bygone era. You, you almost feel like you're betraying you know, former convictions, you're saying, this is wrong. I, I was taught this was wrong. It, you, you were taught wrongly. You were taught wrongly if you were taught that this is wrong. So we're not to despise it. The second thing, again, is it says test it. So that's just what I talked about a few minutes ago. You evaluate what is being said. And then the third thing says hold fast to what is good. So you hear it because you're not despising it. You're not avoiding it. You're not refusing it. But when you hear it, you're able to take whatever time you need to analyze it. Somebody spoke a word over me on the phone this morning, and when Amy walked in, she asked, how are you doing? I said, I'm still processing that, processing that word that Micah gave me this morning on the phone, and this is 10 hours later, whatever it is, and for, for 8 to 10 hours all day, I'm rehearsing what was said to me. I'm weighing it, and quite frankly, he nailed me. It, it was good. I needed to hear it, but it took. I had to test it. Now that I know that it's from the Lord, what do I do? I now embrace it, and I don't see it as Micah, my friend from South Atlanta's word over me. I see that God used Micah to get a message to me from God. So now I'm accountable to the Lord. What will I do with it? I can't say, ooh, I got a prophetic word spoken over me today. Cool. That's not the purpose. If God is the source of the prophetic word, then there's some accountability there.